0: 1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll be looking at the entire chapter today uh, as we continue our series through this book and through 2 Timothy and Titus as well. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with this text. Our Lord Jesus, the Lord of his church, the deliverer of his church, we are thankful as we come to this text in your word as it gives us instructions as your church we pray that you would help us with it as this text is difficult it has been a blessing to me this week as i prepared and I, I feel like it'll be a blessing to us all and so lord we pray that you guide us through it and to it that you Strip us of any preconceived traditions that we would lump upon this text, that you help us to gather meaning from it rather than bringing meaning to it. And so, Lord, we are thankful that you have given us your word. We pray that we would use it wisely. And, Lord, convict us of our sin. We are all guilty, and we need help guide us as we continue our worship of you through the hearing, preaching, and learning from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I came to this text, and the text is about prayer, and so I was reminded of a story that I heard back when I was in college and actually read about a man named Dawson Trotman. Some of you have probably heard of him. He was the founder of a group called the Navigators, which is a college ministry uh, it's still around today. Lots of colleges and campuses have navigators. Uh, the main focus of this ministry is discipleship and sending people out to the furthest reaches of the world, to other college campuses, so that they in, they in turn may disciple others. It's a great ministry. I've known several folks that have come up through that ministry in college, several folks who are actually uh, the leaders of campus ministries, and so I think it's a fantastic ministry. Uh, Dawson Trotman began his ministry as a young man, as a Sunday school teacher, he was a volunteer at a local boys club, he had a real heart for seeing the boys in his town learn about Jesus, learn the truths of scriptures, of the scriptures, and he read a verse one day, and this verse uh, inspired him, it was Jeremiah 33.3, 3. it says, Call to me and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. And so from that verse, he and a friend began to pray every morning for several hours. They would actually drive out to this remote spot near a canyon, which seems like the perfect place to go pray together. They would start a little fire, and they would pray for several hours, and they did this every day for months. And the focus of their prayers began with the local boys' ministry, the boys' club and his Sunday school class, that those boys would would grow up to be men who discipled others. Soon they began praying for the surrounding cities, boys' ministries, and, and the surrounding states even. And then all the states in the Union, they actually brought a map out there to their prayer time and would just pray over specific states. Well, that didn't stop them. They bought a whole map of the world and prayed over all of the countries individually, specific things for these countries and again, they kept this up for several months until finally, in his words, uh, he says he felt the burden was lifted and they stopped this time of prayer. And then he started this ministry called Navigators. And, um, it's a great story. I encourage you to read his biography. But again, he served this until his death. Before he died, he and his wife were, began looking over the many men that he had discipled during his time and realized soon that he had discipled someone from every state of the Union and led someone to be a discipler from every state of the Union. And then other, even other countries, all these other countries that he and his friend had prayed for all those years ago, he had led men to Christ from those countries, and those men then began other ministries out in those countries. He was a man who truly desired that all men and women... Should be saved. And he acted on that. Not only did he share the gospel. Actively. But he prayed to the Lord of the harvest. That he would send workers. And he did. And he does. Again the navigators are still going strong. Countless folks have met Jesus through their ministry. Have been discipled. To be men and women. Who love the Lord. And who love others. Great ministry. So in our text today, we're going to see this same idea coming from the Scriptures, that we should pray for all men and women because it's God's desire that they should be saved. Not only that, Paul frames this idea of prayer then and how we should look at the church. He begins to talk about the authority structure in the church, and we're going to see that carry on throughout chapter 3 and the rest of the book as well. There's a lot in this text, a lot. I'm not going to be able to pretend to be able to reach every nook and cranny uh, that's going on here, so I just hope to present the major thrust of the text again after the sermon. I encourage you, if you have questions, we can, we can talk about those. Uh, that, that is always something we can do. But I think for us, it's a recognition that many times, I know for me even, We don't desire the salvation of others. We say we do. We say we want that, but we demonstrate our lack of desire through our lack of prayer, through our lack of sharing the gospel, uh, through the other things that tend to take center stage in our life rather than ministry to the saints and ministry to the lost. We're all guilty of that from time to time. And so I think that this text is helpful. With that, we're going to look at two main ideas from this text, the content of our prayers and the context of our prayers. With that, let's look at the text. Let's stand together as we read 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll read the chapter in its entirety. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1. First of all, then... I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. With modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but woman, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. And so, for today's text, I think it will be helpful for us to review where we've kind of been up to this point in the book. Because, again, context is very important. Uh, Paul has this continuous train of thought, and he's continuing that train of thought with this chapter. He's not breaking, it's kind of moving on through that here. Uh, He's not starting a new idea yet. Remember, at the the end of chapter 1, Paul charged Timothy to wage... The good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And in this passage, what is, how does he start this passage off? He says, first of all, then, I urge you. And so what is he saying? This is how I want you to do that. And so he's telling us, he's laying out a plan for Timothy on how he should wage the good warfare. Remember, Timothy's headed to Ephesus where they're having trouble in the church. He's giving him the tools in order to assist him with that effort. And I think it's also helpful for us to understand the previous context when it comes to false teaching. What was the false teaching that was going on there in the church? That being a particular kind of person. Remember they studied the genealogies. Or doing a particular thing. Having a particular kind of truth that was special to you. This how it would somehow earn you a greater rank In God's kingdom, the vain discussions, the mythologies and the genealogies that these false teachers practiced. All of these, Timothy was being sent to deal with. Why? Because they represented an attack on the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is for who? All people. Paul lays this out several times in his letters. For all people. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, kings, peasants, men, women, all people, the gospel message is for them, not for people who have a particular lineage or particular kind of truth. The offer of the gospel is to all people. The preacher of the gospel then is to proclaim the gospel to all who can hear his voice, that they might repent and believe in Christ Jesus. And I think that's an important context for us as well. Keep that in mind as we go forward because I think these proceeding verses are considered controversial to many. But in the context and I think not only the context here in First Timothy but the context of all of scriptures remember all of this is God's word not just these little parts that we decide to pull out but all of it is the same God said all of them um This helps us to get an understanding of the fullness of Paul's teaching here. And so let's begin then with our first point, the content of our prayers. Paul first urges us, Timothy and us, we are urged to make prayers for all people. How are these prayers described? He says, well, he says supplications, verse 1, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings are to be made for all people. Is he... uh, now instructing us to make specific kinds of prayers for all people. does he, uh, he basically kind of pulls out a lexicon at this point and comes up with every word that could be a prayer. You know, I don't think that that's what he's doing as far as you have to pray a prayer of supplication, and then a prayer, and then an intercession, and then a thanksgiving. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think more than that, Paul is really highlighting The fact that all kinds of prayers should be made for all kinds of people. I don't think we are being instructed to pray specific things. Uh, We don't want to break this down that much, but I think Paul is using a whole lot of words to basically describe prayer. He's bringing in the full complement of vocabulary in order to orient us that prayer is a very important thing. And he gives us an example of the kinds of people that we should be praying for. That should receive our prayer. And who does he list? Verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He gives us the kind of prayer that should be offered for them: quiet and peaceful life, dignified in every way. If you're a king, Christian or pagan, it doesn't matter. Isn't this the wish that you would have for your life? Peaceful and quiet, dignified in every way. Isn't this a great prayer for anyone in leadership? Wouldn't we pray that for our own president, whether we like him or not? If our president is having a peaceful and quiet life, guess who else is? We are. As people in this country, that's what we should pray. I think that's what anyone should pray for, their leadership, no matter what, right? And so Paul is giving us a kind of prayer for leadership. Well, we, we, we understand this, right? I mean, we, we pray different kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. As we leave here sometimes, I'll tell Todd that I'm praying for him that, that he will have a boring week. Is that because I'm wishing boredom for him, that I'm hoping he'll sit and twiddle his thumbs while he's at home? And I wish Mike wouldn't have prayed this for me. Now I'm bored as all get out. No, that's not what I'm praying for Todd. We know that Todd's an ER doctor, so boredom for him means that people are well. That people aren't out doing stupid things. And that he is having a nice, easy time at the hospital with little stress. That's a good prayer for your doctor friends. I'm friends with Sam Steger, our our sheriff. I tell him the same thing. I pray that your weekend is nice and boring. He wants the same thing. Trust me. Todd prays for me every Sunday. What does he pray for me? That I would teach God's word and not my own. That I'd be protected from the devil. Isn't that a good prayer for a pastor? It's a good prayer for all of us. But we understand what Paul's getting at here, right? He prays specific things for specific people. We, we, We appreciate that. We understand that. And Paul says that this is pleasing to God. Why is this pleasing to God? Because God desires all people to be saved, is what he says. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, verse 3, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so he's qualifying that by saying Christ gave himself as a ransom. For all. So this is a difficult passage. When we aren't considering the text or the context of this text, I think it's difficult. And when we don't look at the context of all of Scripture, it can be difficult and cause us to want to jump off and grab hold of other things. Because we first have to ask ourselves when it comes to this text, is there anything that God desires? That isn't going to come to fruition. If God wants something, does it happen? Is God anyway prevented from something that he wants? Remember in Genesis when he says, let there be light. What happened? Light became. There wasn't light and light came rushing to God and said, here I am. No, there wasn't light before and light became a thing. Whereas there wasn't a thing before. So when God speaks, things become. If he wants something, he is not left waiting for it in the sense that you and I are. You know, when I order a new board game, I wait for it to come. I can't snap my fingers and it be there, thankfully, or I would probably be broke. All right? And so... There's an appointed time for things, yes. We see that God is, for instance, Jesus has not come back yet. He is waiting in the sense that He knows the appointed time, but not in the sense that you and I are waiting and that we don't. He doesn't wait. He simply does as He pleases. If He wants something, it happens. And I think we all understand that. Where do we understand that from? Read the whole of Scriptures. God is not hindered in any way. And so second then, what do we have to ask ourselves? Is everyone saved? No. Where do we how do we know that? Well, Jesus tells us that there's a place called hell and that people are going to go there and that people are there. And so we know that those who are not saved, those who do not repent and believe in Him as Lord, this is their destination because they are not saved. We can look at the Scriptures and guess other people who aren't because of their lack of repentance, their lack of belief in a Savior. We can look in history and see that again. We're not given full disclosure on the roster of heaven but we do know that there are folks that aren't there. Therefore, they are in hell. They are unsaved. And so if it's God's desire that all would be saved, and there are some who are not saved, how can we reconcile that? The rest of Scripture is going to have to help us. It makes it clear. What does Scripture make it clear? That God has set aside a people for himself from the foundation of the world. Where we read that. We see that in Ephesians 1. We see that in Genesis 12. Where God calls out to Abraham. And Abraham comes. Why Abraham? Because God wanted it to be Abraham. Not because Abraham was the only good guy. Abraham was worshipping other gods when he called him. He has a people set aside for himself. And those are his. And he sent his son Jesus to do What? Matthew one twenty one tells us that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. These people that God has set aside from the foundation of the world. They will call him Jesus because he is a savior. Every person? No. We deny the idea of universalism. We deny that... um, this idea that everyone is saved regardless of their beliefs, this is a this is a more common idea than you think. Um, you can anytime, you know, for you used to it was Larry King or you know talk shows like that. Anytime they get a bunch of pastors together, you always have this big mix, and it seems like the majority of them believe this idea that it doesn't really matter what you believe, everyone's going to heaven, and then thankfully they get. Uh, someone like John MacArthur on there to set them all straight that's always good Um, but we deny this idea of universalism that everyone is saved regardless of what they believe this contradicts Jesus Christ himself right? who said that people must repent and believe in him that he is the only way to the father there is no other way outside of Jesus Christ there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved and so how else then can we look at this verse well who are we asked to pray for Who are we asked to pray for? All people. All then mentions kings. A kind of person. Why? Because the gospel is for who? All kinds of people. Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free, kings, peasants, men, women. The false gospel suggests that there's only a certain kind of person that is able to be saved. The true gospel says any kind of person can be saved. So who is it that God desires to be saved? All kinds of people. Who did Jesus make a ransom for? All kinds of people. The only other option that we have is that Jesus made a ransom for all people, and some of those people aren't saved. So the ransom that Jesus paid, some of it is just left invalid undealt with. We can't have that. We can't have any portion of Jesus' redemptive work go unaccounted for. Or we could say that Jesus paid a ransom for all and then all are saved. But we've reject that because of Scripture. And so we're stuck with this idea that Jesus died for all kinds of people. God desires all kinds of people to be saved. And that's happening. Is it not? And I think this changes the way that we do ministry. It should. Because if we know that God has set aside a people for himself, we know that he sent his son to save those people, then how should we respond? We should go out into the world with confidence. This should not at all hamper our evangelism efforts. This should strengthen them. I've been told that if you believe that, then you should never do evangelism because people are already going to be saved. He's going to be saved. And my response to that is, no. To me, that strengthens my desire to go out and share the gospel because there are those who are out there that will be saved. And it has nothing to do with me, thank the Lord. I don't even have to have a great argument I can just say repent and believe that Jesus is Lord and there are those whom the Lord has prepared ahead of time that will be saved because he set aside a people for himself, all kinds of people. To me, it increases my confidence and zeal in evangelism. We know that our work is not in vain because Jesus is making things new right now. I think it helps us in the way that we do even the mundane things of life. Raising our families, which is far from mundane, but you understand what I'm saying. We know, I know that if I raise my children up in the Lord, that when I die, guess what the church is going to do? It's going to continue, and it has for generations and generations, because what we do for the Lord matters tomorrow, and He's still working. And it takes away the pressures that we have from evangelism. What is the pressure? They're not going to like me. They're going to think that I'm dumb. I'm going to sound stupid. All these pressures that we have because it makes evangelism a way of life for us. We can talk about Jesus without having to wonder if we're going to say the wrong thing or push someone away. I don't want to push them away. Maybe they'll never believe now. That's not up to us. The Lord is doing that. He desires that all those that Christ came for will be raised up on the last day. He desires that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. If God desires it, it will happen regardless of my ability or lack thereof. That's freedom, folks. It frees us up to preach the gospel, to live out the gospel in our daily lives, to mess up. And that's okay, free to believe the gospel, knowing we don't have to worry about our own salvation either. We have been bought with a ransom. And a ransom is the very person of Jesus Christ. It can't be undone. We are His for eternity. That is a real blessing. And so then let us, brothers and sisters, be freed up to pray for all kinds of people, like our brother Dawson Trotman did. Let us do that for our community, for our college, for our friends and family. It will change the way that we look at the lost just by praying for them. It will change the way that we look at them, the way that we talk to them about our faith. So let me encourage you with that. And so next, the context of our prayers. Paul continues with the idea with prayer, but now he's beginning to delineate responsibilities and helping us understand the roles in the church particularly between men and women. He says that both men and women should be praying, that men should do so without anger and quarreling. Why? Well, apparently this was an issue in the church in Ephesus, that men were were quarreling, that men were in anger with one another. Praying is a great way to come together with a common voice. A lot of times that at presbytery meetings and synod meetings that can sometimes get very heated over uh, issues. Uh, what do, how do we come together? We come together with prayer. We come together with praises to God, with a common voice. And it's a good thing for us to do that. Not quarreling. This probably goes back again to thinking of the vain discussions, to the odd teachings in chapter 1 that they were having. Paul's encouraging the men, don't argue over silly things. Pray together. For the women, they should be dressing modestly is how we can sum this up. They aren't to be the object of worship. The Lord is. This isn't outlining specific attire for women in the church, and so I want to go ahead and get that out of the way. But I think it's explaining that the focus should be on the Lord rather than the woman. It's not saying that women can't wear jewelry to church. I Don't think that's how we should look at this verse. It's just saying that they shouldn't focus their attention on being the attraction because Jesus is. Both men and women here are called to be the focus or to focus on Jesus rather than on themselves. And I think that's important for us to see that here. We can insert any other thing here. For Paul is dealing with a particular issue in Ephesus. We have issues of our day as well. We we can agree and identify all these issues, but we know those things that would block us from worship. And this is helpful for us to understand. Uh, I'll just say that distracted worship is not a new idea. And we should always be working against it, I think, first and foremost in our own hearts. And I think that that's where Paul is going with this next part concerning the structure of the church. What does structure do for us? Just think in general. Structure prevents distraction, allows us to retain focus and purpose. So when Paul says that women should remain silent there in um, verse 11, should learn quietly with all submissiveness what is going on here. Uh, and then he says that they should specifically not teach or exercise authority over man. This is for the good of the church. An important note this isn't about political office. This isn't about secular workplace. This isn't saying that women shouldn't hold political office or be a boss or anything like that. That's uh, that's a silly interpretation of this. I've heard that interpretation. That is silly. This is talking about the church, all right. So we shouldn't take it out past that. So, but so how do we interpret this? What should this hearken us back to? Well, I think it should help us to. Or it should. Or it would be helpful for us to look at the created order, how man, women, and children are created. Man is created, woman is created from him as his helper, and then from both of them come children. Paul deals with this in another passage that he wrote in Ephesians chapter 5. Turn with me there. Let's look at that. Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to read this passage because I think it'll ground us. Ephesians chapter five twenty through or twenty two, and then I'm going to read through six four so that we can see his message to the wives, to the husbands, and also to the children. Ephesians five twenty two. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and his body. and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment of the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And so when Paul looks at this in Ephesians, this idea here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is a working out of this same idea in the structure of the church. The church is a covenant community made up of little covenant communities that we call families. And the same structure is there. As we should see this as a setting right of things that were broken. What did the culture do in that day, and how did they treat women? Well, they treated them as property. It's not a good thing. This says that the woman has a place in the church and a place in the family. Paul will teach later, even in Second Timothy that we're going to be looking at about the importance of women, teaching other women, teaching the children in the church, an extremely important thing. Paul even credits Timothy's own salvation and discipleship to his mother and his grandmother. Luke, in, the, in his own gospel, in the book of Acts, shows the importance of women in ministry, in the ministry of Jesus and even in the early church. And so this passage is not taking anything away from women, but rather lifting them up. And notice that when paired with Ephesians 5, it also puts men in their proper place as well. They are in authority, and their authority demonstrates love, the love of Christ for his church. This isn't some kind of domineering authority or an angry authority, but leading with love and care. The leaders of the church should lead that way. If they don't, they shouldn't be leaders in the church. Male leadership loves the church. Just like Christ loved his church. And again, if you don't love the church, you should not be a leader in it. You have to love the church to lead it. And I think we're going to look at this more in the, next, in the coming weeks as, as Paul delineates the officers of the church. And I think this idea also sets right what we read in Genesis verse, or chapter 3, verse 16. Turn there with me quickly as well. Remember Genesis 3 is where we see the curse of sin being outlined as God uh, catches Adam and Eve in the garden and he outlines the curse. We see Paul referring to the garden here in this passage and so I want to look at this. I think verse 16 is important for us because it actually talks about not only the relationship between man and woman, but between woman and her children as well. Chapter 3, verse 16, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What's going on here? Well, pain and childbearing, this isn't just actual giving birth, but this is bringing the child up as well. This is a from birth to adulthood kind of idea. That pain is not just experienced in bringing the child into the world, but also bringing the child up in the world. And then what's the next part talking about? Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. This isn't just a detailing of the power in a a marriage. It's not what's going on here. This is how sin has diluted that. Marriage... Under sin and under the curse of sin, becomes a power struggle where each person is struggling for the power in the relationship. The woman struggling for the power, the man struggling for the power, and this having a struggle. And so, what do we see in the New Testament then? We see kind of a writing of this and an undoing of the curse. I think that's important for us. The authority structure in the home is broken with the fall. And then it's redeemed through Christ Jesus. And look at verse 15 in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy again. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is a difficult verse. um, Lots of interpretations. Lots of really smart guys who are going to disagree with my interpretation. um, But what I see here is that this idea of salvation in Scripture is not just a one-time thing where we are justified, delivered from our sins, but we understand salvation to be a lifelong thing that is happening to us. You've heard me say that I've been saved and I'm being saved, meaning that I have been saved once and for all. Jesus bought me with a ransom. And then I'm being saved in that I am being made new. I am being reconstructed I am being made more and more like him. And so what is happening to the woman through childbearing? What did the curse say? That there will be pain in that. It will be hard. What does the New Testament tell us? That there will be salvation in that. There will be sanctification in that process. It's a good thing to bring up children. And so I think that's important for us to see that. It's an ongoing process. And so salvation through childbearing is now a good thing. It isn't that raising kids is all of a sudden easy. But in the context of the covenant community, it becomes easier. And I think that's important for us to see. It's not that Christians have the best kids. Uh, That's not at all what I'm saying because um, I don't think that's the truth. Um, But it does help us as Christian families to raise our kids up in a covenant community and we will see sanctification through that and so in conclusion what do we do with this well, we're going to be looking more again at the offices of the church in the next few weeks I think so it's important for us to establish a biblical view of the roles of men and women and I think Paul does that here before he begins outlining the, the offices in the church um, and, I, and I think it's important for us to, to say too That when we let the world And the culture inform our doctrine We begin to look just like the world And so we have to be careful with that So we have to allow scripture to teach us And then we begin to look more and more like Christ And I think for us too We need to rejoice In what we are called to As one people Under Christ Men and women All of us To pray That many would be saved. To know that God is saving His people even now. He's calling to His sheep. And what does Jesus tell us in John 10? That His sheep hear His voice. And they hear it and they come to Him. And that there are sheep of another fold, of other folds. Meaning that there are sheep still out there that need to hear the gospel, will respond to the gospel, and will come to Him. And he's using us to do that. Praise be to God. And so let us endeavor to then to be a picture of what God would have his church to be in that regard. Let us pray for the lost and let us be on purpose about that. I'm not saying that we should pray several hours every morning for months and months on end. I'm not saying that. But we can definitely orient our prayers and be on purpose about them. And then what will we see? We will see God's faithfulness to answer those prayers. We know that those that we should be praying for, we can all look toward those. And so let us do that. The Lord is willing and he is able to save. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you indeed died to save many. And they are out there. And you have called us to preach the gospel to all men and women that they might hear the gospel and they might be saved. Lord, help us to do that. Encourage us. Show us your faithfulness in saving those who have heard the gospel message. We are thankful that we it doesn't depend on our own ability, our eloquence, but it depends only upon you and your work, and you are faithful, and you will do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.